Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Today we are landing the plane, if you will, on this series called Rest for the Weary. And this series brought to mind for me a few days ago uh, an early memory I have from being here at the Kirk. Uh, I had been here less than a month and I was given the opportunity to lead uh, what we called the family retreat over at New Life Ranch. So before I was even on staff, I had to come up with devotions and a theme for this. And what I came up with, uh, this was my first teaching at the Kirk, really. Uh, we called the theme nap time, nap time. And then the subtitle was finding rest in Christ-centered living. Now, if you're a fifth grader, nap time has got to be about the most boring camp thing you have ever heard. But if you're an adult, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So uh, apparently this is a repeated theme in my life and uh, maybe I need to take more naps. This morning... We're continuing in this series, and throughout the series, we've been trying to learn how to receive the invitation of Jesus, to come to him when we are weary and we're burdened by the struggles of life. We've talked about many important topics, such as anxiety, depression, fear, grief, the burdens of others. And today, our final topic is the burden of sin. This is the heaviest burden that human beings carry is the weight of our sin. You've heard me say this before, but my favorite complaint I have ever received in ministry was someone who said, you preach on sin too much. And they meant it as a criticism. I took it as uh, you know, a good thing. And uh, so the moral of the story for all of you is be careful what you complain about, because someday you might end up being a sermon illustration. So as we think about this idea of the weight of sin, I think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. This is the invitation to come into the yoke with Jesus, to walk with him, to let him do the heavy lifting for him, to guide us. For us to set aside all of these sins and these burdens that so easily entangle us and fix our eyes on him, to walk with him. And yet in our lives, we carry around sin. We're like a person trying to run wearing a weighted vest. Have you seen people do this? They're training. And look, I I totally get it. I understand the concept that by putting on the weighted vest uh, that we are getting stronger and that type of thing. But, um, you know, I got this, there's, do we have the picture? Is it? Okay, there we go. So I got this picture off of a blog post and the post was called tips for running with a weighted vest. Now, let me just tell you, I have got one tip for you and it's real simple. Take it off. Take the weighted vest off. You want to run faster? Take it off. You want to enjoy your run or your walk more? Take that thing off off, but so it is in our lives, right? We're carrying around this weight 
and this burden that we were never meant to carry. Now, maybe some of you, you're not runners, you're not into training, you don't look anything like that guy, which I definitely don't. So let's think about another metaphor. Some of us are like this person at the airport. You know, you know who you are. You know, in your heart, if you're that person, you carry so much stuff. And years ago, my wife and I, we traveled uh, internationally for two weeks and we, we had just a carry on and a little backpack. We were so proud of that. And of course, just, you know, mocking the people, at least I was in my heart, who had these giant suitcases trying to go on these cobblestone streets and just, you know, lugging all this stuff. Now here I am years later, I have children. So we look like this, you know, we've got uh, backpacks, we've got strollers, we have car seats, we have way too much stuff. And this is how we are in life, right? Some of us are carrying around so much extra baggage, And that baggage is the weight of our sin. And so this morning, we're hoping to learn more about what it looks like to throw off this weight uh, and turn it over to Jesus and walk with him. So our case study this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 8. Just a quick note, because you will notice, or maybe you've never noticed it before, but in your Bibles, this section of John's Gospel is italicized, or it's set off, it's in brackets, and there's this kind of cryptic note in there. So I'm going to give you just a quick summary of what's going on here. So basically, the historical evidence is that this story in this form was not in this location in John's original manuscript of the gospel. We do believe that this is a historically credible event that was documented, that was was told. Uh, it does show up in later manuscripts in different pieces, in different places. So what they've decided to do is leave it in there, although since there's some lack of clarity about it, they've set it aside to say, hey, there's some uncertainty on this, okay? And we wouldn't want to base any major doctrines only on this text or anything like that, but I think it's valuable And I think they left it in there because it's a story that is consistent with the ministry and teachings of Jesus. Uh, It certainly resonates with the other themes in John's gospel. But I just thought I would take just a moment to at least briefly, we can nerd out over the topic on coffee some other time, but just briefly to kind of mention that since it's in there, maybe you've noticed that before. I hope that it won't be something that's unsettling to you. Because if anything, the care and precision with which the scriptures have been preserved and maintained and passed on is is actually such a high standard that in these instances where there's uncertainty, there are footnotes in our Bible to explain those things. And that's because there is such a high standard. In fact, the Bible of any ancient document, any document that is as old as the Bible or older, it has more evidence far surpassing than anything else. We have more copies, more manuscripts, more consistency than anything else. It meets the standard. And in fact, even scholars who don't believe the claims of Jesus as Messiah, in other words, they're not Christians, they will still tell you that these letters are what was written by these people in this time period. That, In other words, it is historically credible. So I just say that to you because I don't want you to be unsettled by this. Like, oh, well, does this even belong in John's gospel? Again, it's, you know, all the major translations include it. So it's good enough for me because those people are a lot smarter than I am. Um, but they have decided to set it apart just for clarity, so we know that there is some uncertainty about it. But it's a great story, and so we're going to look at it this morning. The setting is the Mount of Olives. Jesus is at the temple courts. He's teaching, 
And in verse 3, it says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? The religious leaders, they're clearly trying to trap Jesus, right? This is a trap. It's a setup. They have, they've brought this woman forward. She is a, ends up being a kind of guinea pig. They're trying to catch Jesus, setting himself above the law as they perceived he had done in the past. Now, the Mosaic law was clear. Adultery was wrong. The punishment for it was death. However, there's a couple of things worth noting. Number one, it's interesting to note that the man involved is nowhere to be found. It's just the woman But perhaps even moreover, the religious leaders are excluding any option for mercy in this situation. They're saying this woman must be stoned. However, the law contained all kinds of provisions for repentant sinners, sacrifices that could be made. Provision for a person who is who is genuinely repentant. So think about it this way. If we have a little case study. If according to the law, an adulterer always had to be put to death, then Psalm 51 would never have been written by King David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. But he was shown mercy and forgiveness because there was provision in the law for God's mercy to be shown for those who would repent. They know how compassionate Jesus is, and so they thought that they that he might just excuse her sin. So they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to, to stone such women. What do you say? Now, though it appears as if this woman was the one on trial, when you actually focus on it, you realize who's the one who's on trial here. It's Jesus. That's who's on trial. They're watching and observing, trying to catch him doing something wrong so they can discredit him, arrest him. They can do anything to diminish his influence because he threatened their way of living and leading. That's what it was. It was a threat to them, the way that they led and the way they led their lives. They put Jesus in a position of being a judge here. And they're wondering what kind of judge is he going to be? Is he going to be a just judge? who upholds the truth and the law and righteousness, or is he going to be a merciful judge? And this is the default of the human heart. We're either for justice or we're for mercy, but what we have a hard time seeing is that Jesus embodied both. And his way involves both, both justice and mercy. In verse 5, They say the law requires us to stone such women, reflecting that her identity identity is not defined as an individual soul, but as a representative of a notorious group, adulterers. The truth is we all have our equivalent of those people, don't we? We all have our version of some group of people, some type of sin, some different class or ethnicity of people. We all have our version of people that we write off as those people that are so different from us and that we are clearly better than. May Jesus give us his eyes to see all people the way that he sees him. Amen. We all do this. So then Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. 
They kept on questioning him, and he straightened up, and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then in verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is kind of unusual. And the hard thing is, we're not told what Jesus wrote. We don't know whether he was drawing something, creating some kind of model, whether he was simply drawing a line in the sand, as if to say, whoever is prepared to stone this woman, step across the line, if you're qualified to do so. We don't know. But regardless, it seems like his purpose is to create a a teachable moment. He's heightening the tension, right? As if someone was leading a workshop and somebody asked a particularly difficult question and the speaker took a moment to just sort of start writing something. Everyone would be wondering, what are they writing? It heightens the tension. And the language mirrors the writing of the law in Exodus 31. And maybe this is making too much of a detail. I don't know, but I found this to be interesting. They're speaking of Moses and and bringing the law and, and, and all of that. And when you look in Exodus, we know that Moses didn't write the law, right? The language that is used there is that the finger of God, Exodus 31, the finger of God wrote the law. And so maybe, maybe John, in retelling this story, by using this detail and the language and actually even the the, the grammar that he used, it follows a similar construction. He's trying to say, no, Jesus is the one. You guys want to talk about interpreting the law, applying the law? No, the one who literally wrote the book is standing in front of you with his finger, writing out the truth of how to apply this situation. Instead of addressing the law or the woman's sin, he turns the mirror on the religious leaders and says, how about time for a little self-examination? And he says, okay, You stone her. It's actually a command. You must stone her. However, let the one who has no sin be the first to cast the stone. He's, he's showing himself actually as the just judge. He's not, he's not saying, okay, her sin doesn't matter. He's not even saying she's not a sinner. He's actually acknowledging her sin, but he's saying, let the one who has perfectly applied the law in their own life, let them be the one to bring justice in this situation. None of them. They all walk away. And the irony of it all is that there's only one standing there who can do it. And it's Jesus. And instead of casting the stone at the woman, we know it hasn't happened yet at this time of this event. But Jesus will be the one who will himself be stoned, who will be crucified, who will die, who will take the penalty upon himself. The one who's in the position to apply the law chooses to take the punishment of death upon himself. And so here's how Jesus embodies the perfect tension, displays it for us. His posture is neither condemning nor condoning. So powerful, right? Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her sin. That is the tension. The default of our hearts is to condemn or to condone. And here's how, here's how I've worked it out. I think that if we're honest, we tend to be more condemning toward things that we perceive we're better at or things that we struggle with less. We condemn. I can't believe people who do that. 
act like that. And we're more merciful or condoning towards things that we know that we struggle with, right? That's our heart. We're one or the other. You know, we look at the polarization we talk about so frequently. And yes, it's political, but it's more than that. It's the human heart. We're all kind of torn two directions. And we don't know the way of mercy and justice, the third way, the way of Jesus. That's the way we're learning. It's a different way that neither condemns people outright nor condones their sin. Instead, Jesus brings the woman in, he connects and he challenges. Instead of condemning, instead of condoning, he connects and he challenges us. He says, come into the yoke with me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Walk with me. And he challenges us. So we see in Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer condemned because our sin has been paid for. By grace, through faith in Christ, those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus will not stone you. So stop stoning yourself. He won't give up on you. So don't give up on yourself. And don't give up on the possibility of change in your life or the lives of those around you. Because to give up on the possibility of change is to give up on the power of the gospel. You see, we believe the proverbial saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And we see situations and we see people and we say, that'll never change. And the truth is, As gospel people, we should never say that. We should never write off the possibility of change. Now, we may look at situations and say, wow, it's going to take a miracle and the power of God for that to change. That's true. A lot. But we should never write off the possibility of change. We are not condemned in Christ Jesus But yet, at the same time, Jesus doesn't condone. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? You're fine. We're fine. Everybody's fine. No, we're not fine. He says, rise up in the power of the gospel. He says, rise up and don't live in your sin anymore. Live a new way. Walk in freedom. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In Christ, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is hope, there is power for change. But don't keep walking in the darkness. If we come and we enter the yoke with Jesus, he leads the way. We walk with him. He says, I did the heavy lifting. I went to the cross, but you must pick up your own cross and follow me. This is a great place to land this sermon series because starting next week, we're going to be in the Minor Prophets uh, on a series called uh, U-Turn Required. And it's all about judgment, hope, and repentance, and changing, and being challenged. And so we need to learn to provide a culture and a context where people can start over again. That's what the church is. We're a place where people get to start over again again and again, and the grace and the mercy of God is wide, is deep. You know, sometimes in our house, we ask for a rewind. You guys ever do that, right? You say something, you do something, you have some attitude, and you say, you know what? Let me just, let me have a rewind, right? And you get a rewind, and you get to do it again. 
And that is the daily experience of a believer. We get rewinds. We get mercy. We get grace. So how do we unload the weight of our sin from our lives? How do we offload some of this luggage or this weight that we have been bearing? And it comes through confession and repentance. Confessing just simply means acknowledging our sin. Repenting means to turn away from it and to turn to God, right? To fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not just to turn away, but to turn back to God. And that's something that we do at the beginning of our, of our life of faith, of salvation, is we repent of our sins, we turn away, we place our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. But then it is also something that we continue to do as a regular flow of confession and of repentance because we are not there yet. It is a daily journey for the believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he's just, and he'll forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We confess our sins to God, but there's also a unique healing that comes in confessing our sins to other believers. There's something powerful in that, right? Not that we're seeking them to forgive us. Only God can forgive, but they stand in as the presence of Jesus. They stand in as one who will neither condemn nor condone our sin, right? That's the kind of friends we need. Who won't condemn us for our sin, but they also won't say, oh yeah, it's fine. No, who will walk with us as we walk with Jesus to connect with us and challenge us to become new people. And then finally, Acts 3, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There is a refreshment that comes when we offload some of that stuff, when we unpack some of those things from the suitcase we've been carrying around, when we take off that weighted vest in the journey of life, there's a refreshment that comes. There's a renewal. We all want revival, but it starts with repentance. That's the foundation. And we need truly a godly sorrow and grief over our sin, or otherwise we won't change. We'll keep coming back to those same things. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. I want to finish by reading an article, and I, I, read, I quoted this a couple of years ago, but it came back to my mind as I was preparing this sermon. It was so profound to me and helpful that I want to, I want to finish here. There's an article by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. And he says there's an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins, but repentance turns away from past sins. Most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoy the cathartic experience, bewail our sin and how selfish or stupid or sorry we are, but we don't really want to change. We don't really want to live differently. Here's one way to distinguish between worldly grief and godly grief. One mobilizes you into action. The other immobilizes you. Godly grief is fruitful and effective emotion. We we aren't meant to wallow in this grief. It's supposed to spur us to action, to change, to want to right our wrongs, to be zealous for good works, to run from sin and start walking in the opposite direction. 
But worldly grief makes you idle and stagnant. You don't change. You don't grow. You don't fight against the deeds of the flesh. Instead, you ruminate on your mistakes and you obsess about what other people's opinions are and you ponder what might have been. Do you want to feel bad or do you want to change? Some of us, truth be told, would rather feel bad. It's easier than being changed. My hope for all of us, including myself, is that we will be a people who want to change, who want to offload that weight of sin, who can be the presence of Jesus in the lives of others, not to condemn them, but also not to condone, but to connect with them, to challenge them. What would that do for us as as a church and as a community and for our witness and our effectiveness to run the race, to offload that weight and to fix our eyes on Jesus begins with repentance. It's a daily part of the life of every believer. That's how we unload the weariness and the burden of sin in our lives is that we confess it, we give it over to Jesus, we turn away from it, and we turn back to him. We join me as we pray about these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to show us so tangibly what it means to come into a relationship with you, to show us this great reversal that though we are the ones who deserve to be stoned, every single one of us, Instead, Jesus died in our place for our sins. God, help us to receive that gift by faith. Help us to believe. Help us to surrender to our old way of living and to turn to you in faith to become new people. God, I pray pray for each and every person here today, each and every person listening, watching online. God, whatever sins that they are struggling with, God, would you help them to have a godly grief over that sin, to turn away from it by the power of your Holy Spirit to become a new person. God, we ask for your help, for your hope, for your faith to live into these realities. God, we are weary and burdened, so help us to come and to find rest in a life focused on you. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.